We know even in the clinical trials that many of these women were not given adequate information to make an informed decision about joining the trial. We have documents and we talk about them in our book that um, were given to young women, mailed to young women in Denmark that basically said, this isn't a safety trial. The vaccine has already been shown to be safe. When they got their informed consent documents, it said they were getting an inert, inactive placebo. We know that not to be the case. So there were real concerns even going back all the way to the clinical trials about informed consent here. But one of the reasons that we wrote the book and that the book has a lot of scientific and medical citations in it, and neither of us nor our co-author Eileen Iorio are doctors or, or scientists, was that we wanted to provide information to medical professionals so that they could also see more of the risk side that isn't demonstrated. I'm Marin Green. I'm Luke Story. I'm Lily Nichols. Je m'appelle Rick Safris et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Welcome back, everybody, to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Riley. I'm a board certified OBGYN, but I do things quite a bit differently from other OBGYNs. As you probably know, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, um, I can be found at Nathan Riley OBGYN on Instagram, all the socials, all of that jazz. I think it's Nathan Riley MD on Twitter. I just started a Twitter account, so you can go in and pop around on there. Or Twitter, I think, is now called X. Uh, my practice is belovedholistics.com. You can go find me there if you want to work with me. I have a midwife collaborator program. I do see people one-on-one. And if you're looking for pregnancy and postpartum support, bornfreemethod.com is where you can find the most comprehensive mastermind program on the planet in order for you to have the most autonomous birth possible. That's at bornfreemethod.com. So if you are a listener of the podcast, you probably know that I like to bring in people that are, hmm, let's just say a little bit controversial. However, it shouldn't be controversial. It's just that mother culture has told us that the cult of medicine, that the medical establishment, um, that science is settled. They, they've, they've told us that all of this stuff is a surrogate for you to make decisions for yourself. The problem is that if you are like me, you're probably very thoughtful about vaccines, specifically HPV vaccine. Two little girls, and at some point, the conversation is going to come to whether or not to get them um, inoculated and um, presumably protected from persistent HPV infections, which can ultimately lead perhaps to cervical cancer. The reason that it's sort of doubtful in my eyes around what the easy answer is to this is that I read a book called the HPV vaccine on trial, which is the title of the book that my two guests today wrote. Mary Holland and Kim Beck Rosenberg are here. They're both attorneys. Um, they both work Children's Health Defense, which can be found at childrenshealthdefense.org. Excuse me. And their book is loaded with citations. They have been working um, on this project for many years. And since the introduction of the Gardasil 9 vaccine back in 2006, I believe it was, we have, mm, we would like to believe that we've now eradicated cervical cancer. That certainly hasn't happened. But we've also potentially harmed a lot of young men and women 
um, who as early as age nine now are almost compulsorily being recommended this vaccine without anybody in my field necessarily questioning what's in this vaccine. Is it actually safe? Is it actually effective? We get into all of that. Um, as a spoiler, I will tell you that some of the adjuvants, specifically the aluminum adjuvants that Merck has put into these products, I'm not to mention polysorbate 80, which uh, leads the blood-brain barrier to be a little bit more permeable. Um, it's an emulsifying agent that helps make the vial, you know, evenly distribute all of the components of the vaccine in the vial. Um, but these aluminum adjuvants have, we don't really know much about them. We know that aluminum is abundant now in our environment, in our home, et cetera. But what happens when you inject it over and over and over for a total of something like 74 doses in the childhood vaccine schedule nowadays? Well, there are a lot of other researchers out there that have investigated aluminum, um, both in the veterinary world and in the allopathic human medicine world. And I'm not all that excited about aluminum being in anything that's being injected into my body. And so what we get into in this conversation is a thorough investigation. Well, at least what we can do in one hour. I recommend you read the book because it is chock full of citations, over a thousand citations in this book. And there's a lot of peer reviewed literature as well that is, um, that is you know, a part of this conversation that many of us maybe don't have necessarily enough time to digest ourselves. But there's also plenty of reports um, looking at the raw data from Merck's, quote, safety trials that shows that we weren't even really looking at a true placebo when we compared the safety of the HPV vaccine um, in, the, in the, uh, the intervention group with a, a placebo, you know, what you would think would be a true placebo in the control group. So we get into all of this. I think one really important part of this whole vaccine conversation, if this is important to you, is to know about something called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, 86. It was under this act that we developed these vaccine courts. And so if you um, think that your child was injured by a vaccine, you can't sue either the healthcare professionals or the vaccine manufacturer, in this case, Merck, if we're talking about Gardasil 9, um, you can't sue them until you go through the vaccine court. And that process is convoluted in and of itself. It's hard to find a lawyer. It's hard to get a, a trial. It's just a problem, right? And some people have received compensation there. But, you know, when it comes to taking care of our child, of course, I'm afraid of cervical cancer. Like, it's a terrible, nasty disease. But on the other hand, I'm also concerned that in trying to prevent something from happening, we're actually causing other damage to our little kids. So these fears are palpable. I get it. I'm here with you. I know how challenging this is. And while I don't want my child or my children to develop cervical cancer, or if I had a son, I wouldn't want him to pass it, on, you know, HPV onto a, to a, a female partner. And for her to develop that as a result of him not being able to integrate the message of a virus and clear it with his immune system naturally. Um, I also am very concerned about what we're injecting into. And so in order for you to make an informed decision, you have to be able to um, accept the risks, benefits, and alternatives and the person providing that needs to know the ins and outs of all of that stuff. But many of us did not get taught that in medical school or residency or beyond. So this is a wide ranging conversation. I know you're going to love hearing from Mary and Kim. Of course, if anything in this episode, in any way, please um, subscribe on YouTube. This video will be up on Rumble just due to its content. 
but go and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It is, it is more supportive than you know. The more people that get to hear these conversations, the more rich the conversation becomes. Um, share the episodes with your friends. Otherwise, if you haven't left a five-star review, please do that right now. Just go into Apple Podcasts, leave a little five-star review. It means so much to me. It tells me that I'm doing something right. And I try to provide you know, I, I have a lot of people coming to me for one-on-one -on -one support, but I can't see every single person. So this is why I have a podcast. I want to provide as much um, sort of public-facing education as I possibly can. And the podcast is a great way to do that. And there are a couple brands that have entrusted me with advertising some of their products. And I have no qualms about that because some of these brands, including Immune Intel HCC, which is one of my favorite products and is actually very, very directly related to what we're talking about today, um, is, is right in alignment. You know, the owner Mimi Linquist and I are creating a course called clear and free, which is really going to be your ultimate guide to supporting your immune system and living free of HPV. There are no guarantees in life, but certain things are in your control. And a part of changing your lifestyle is going to be getting adequate nutrition, adequate sleep. Well, what if there was demonstrated product out there that would actually help to boost your immune system by boosting the NK cells, boosting the T cells, helping them connect and communicate with one another? And it was clinically demonstrated in human trials, in vivo trials. Well, look no further. Immune Intel HCC does exactly that. So this is a product made from the mycelia of shiitake mushrooms. And they've done numerous studies to show that before and after, your immune system is going to be working on all cylinders, and it's going to help click, kick that HPV infection for good. Um, of course, you could always be reinfected, but that is most likely to happen when we're not caring for ourselves. We know the risk factors for cervical cancer include malnourishment, um, immune, immune suppression, um, poor sleep, cigarette smoking. All of those things can, can go by the wayside if you want to get as optimally healthy as possible. But if you have a persistent HPV infection, there is a message there for you and to get your health in order. So if you want to try this product, maybe you actually have HPV yourself or a friend or family, go to themedicine.com and use code BELOVED10 and you'll get 10% off a bottle. I recommend doing a two or three um, month course every year. That's what I do. I just love the product. It has no side effects. I actually feel better. I sleep better. Um, I just feel overall less inflamed it's because it's helping to modulate and optimize how you're cooperating with one another. So thank you, Immune Intel, for supporting the show. Our other sponsor probably needs very little introduction. Um, um, BirthFit provides pregnancy and postpartum specific lifestyle programming. It's everything that I could possibly want to do for myself, but I can't do it for every single person. Fortunately, BirthFit's here. So I've done their coaching program. The BirthFit coaches are so unique out there in that they're actually trained to look at you by trimester by trimester. They're able to look at your postpartum period and they're able to help you get back into biomechanic operating function. They look at it through the lens of nervous system support. They will help you with nutrition. They will, um, you have, will have plenty of access to other expert speakers. I've been a speaker in the B community at BirthFit. These guys know what they're doing. So if you wanna try out um, their, their B community, which is a monthly membership program where you get the webinars and you get access to their courses and you're gonna meet a community of other people that are in this with you, learn how to exercise and move nourish yourself on, on, in all of the ways in order to have an optimal pregnancy and a very, very, um, let's say, relatively easier postpartum recovery, go to birthfit.com, use code BELOVED. You get one month free in their B community. You can also use that code to get 20% off of their postpartum basics course, which is fabulous. I, I, I have it on my phone right now. And, um, and, and they just do a great job. What can I say?
If you're uh, uh, interested in becoming a BirthFit professional, they are offering $400 off their upcoming fall cohort using code BELOVED400. So make sure you go to birthfit.com, check out what they're putting down. I love them. I'm so glad, so grateful that you guys have continued to support me over here. Um, Organifi also probably needs very, very little introduction. I love their products. I'm caring for the owner, Drew Canoli, and his partner in their current pregnancy. We're going to have a fabulous time out in, in uh, California um, in a couple months here. Um, the reason I like Organifi so much is that they're using whole foods to make the perfect additions to your um, already healthy lifestyle. So I like to take their green juice in the morning and then I take their red juice in the afternoon and then their gold latte in the evening. The green is going to be a detoxifying, um, kind of a recharging for your mitochondria. There's lots of green plants in there, chlorella, uh, spirulina. You're going to get all those phytonutrients, tons of it. There's also a little splash of ashwagandha to help you manage the copious number of stresses or stressors that you're going to be going through, whether you're pregnant or not in your everyday life. Uh, I will mix it with some elements, some electrolytes, and I'll use it as a pre-workout. It's just a fantastic product. Afternoon, beets, red juice, some functional mushrooms. You're going to get your natural energy boost there without the jitteriness that's, that comes with caffeine. And then in the evening, a scoop of their gold latte with some organic whole fat coconut milk. Mwah! It is a perfect nightcap, way better than wine. will leave you feeling so rest, rested. Um, you're going to fall asleep more easily. You're not going to wake up feeling groggy. I love these products. And they actually have a special right now. If you go to Organifi.com slash Beloved or just use code Beloved at checkout, you'll save 20% on their Sunrise to Sunset Kit, which includes 37 servings of their green juice, their red juice, and their gold latte. It's an amazing offer. And for a limited time, they're going to throw in an additional get goodie. You're going to get 30 servings of their Pure Blend, which helps with mental clarity, focus, cognition. I'm going to be having that in a minute here because I've got some work to do. Um, I generally will mix it with the um, with the red with the red juice in the afternoons to get like a just a natural kind of second wind for my busy work days, seeing patients, making podcasts, serving midwives, doing a, a whole variety of things in, in addition to, of course, helping to raise two beautiful little girls and um, keep my partnership in order. So um, go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You can save 20% on your purchase right now. Um, much in alignment, I think, with Organifi's work, Bioptimizers is also do, doing some great things. Wade Lightheart, the owner, is a friend of mine, and they have two products that have been extremely helpful in my own health. I was finding that my stools were a little bit inconsistent, sometimes a little constipated. I'd miss the, a bowel movement one day or the other, and it's because of the immense amount of stress, because I wasn't managing my stress well. It was actually impacting my gut health. So um, in repairing that, using some probiotics, some um, berberine, some slippery elm bark. I got myself back in order, but I wanted to make sure that I was digesting and absorbing as much of the nutrients from all of the really, really high quality foods that I'm eating, including oysters, organ meats, that type of thing. And the fix was adding a couple capsules of Bioptimizers Masszymes into my diet. So every meal, I take a couple of capsules of this. I take one right before bed. And I add some HCL breakthrough, which gets that digestive process started early, right in the stomach, where you need all that stomach acid. Get off the antacids, get off of the Tums and the PPIs and all of that, and start adding a little bit of acid to your diet. And you're going to find that you have less bloating, less IBS-like symptoms, more consistent bowel movements. And most importantly, you're going to be digesting and absorbing all of those beautiful nutrients from the diet that you've worked so hard to fine-tune over the years. You can go to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN or use code BELOVED for 10% off of either of those products or really any of their products. Their magnesium breakthrough is great. Their sleep breakthrough. They've got a wide range of incredible products there.
And then last but not least, certainly not least, is one of our newer sponsors, WeNatal. WeNatal is beautiful. I'm going to show you. You're watching. I'm going to show you what it looks like to get a package from, from WeNatal. So there's a lot of good prenatal vitamins out there. I've been affiliated with several. But this is my new favorite. And the reason is that they care just as much about the environment as they do about you getting optimal nutrition, whether you're pregnant, whether you're trying to conceive, or you're in the postpartum period trying to optimize your milk not only the supply, but what's included in that milk that's going to be nourishing your beautiful, perfect little newborn. So they send you, when you subscribe, they send you these little canisters that will be refillable, they're glass jars, refillable with a monthly package of pills. And unlike other brands where you might have to take eight capsules a day, you're only going to need to take three capsules and still get all of the nutrition that you need in order to have the best birth outcome possible. They also um, really take into account the mental and emotional aspects and maybe even the spiritual aspects of this tremendous journey that you're on. So they include this really beautiful hardback journal with your purchase. And for a limited time as a listener of the show, if you go to weenatal.com slash beloved or just use code beloved at checkout, you're also going to score yourself a free bottle of their Omega DHA plus fish oil, um, methylfolate, choline, vitamin D, you're going to get it all. If you make any purchase of a prenatal product, um, you're also going to get some fish oil to get some of those extra fatty acids and extra fat-soluble vitamins into your body, to your placenta, to your baby, in order to um, not only grow a healthy baby and optimize their experience earthside, but you're going to have a faster postpartum recovery if you're as nourished as possible. I should also mention that We Natal makes vitamins for both him and her. So I recommend just going and getting the his and her package. And you guys can both be routinely taking your vitamins every day together. It's an awesome little connection exercise as well. All right. So without further ado, my conversation with Mary, um, Mary Holland and Kim Beck Rosenberg, authors of HPV Vaccine on Trial. You don't want to miss this one, guys. If you if you want to see us in person, go to um, the show notes here and you'll see a link to the Rumble video. Otherwise, every other interview is produced live. Um, you're going to get the CP lessons, so you can find us at YouTube. All right, everybody, um, let's get into this. Um, try, bear in mind, try to come into this interview with an open mind and an open heart. And if somebody out there is struggling with this vaccine conversation, even if they disagree with you, provide this to them and have an open conversation. There's just a whole bunch that we don't know. And in the medical sciences, the, the primary principle, the hallmark of medical science is being able to inquire, meaning make a hypothesis, and to be willing to accept whatever the outcome of that trial is, a true placebo-controlled trial. We have not seen that with the Gardasil 9, so that makes me very, very thoughtful. And so um, Mary and Kim are going to do the rest. So here's the station with the authors of HPV Vaccine on Trial. All right. So welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I'm Nathan Riley. I'm an OBGYN. I did not go to law school. So it's hard for me to talk about a lot of the, the sort of uh, legal implications of certain things that we do in medicine. But I am joined by two lawyers slash attorney. We were just kind of trying to figure out what term really most applied. But um, some real specialists in the topic of HPV and vaccines and how these things are put together by pharmaceutical companies and then offered to the public and how somewhere along the chain, something can happen in a devious way that leads to injury and harm without demonstrated benefit. 
And fortunately, we have some very um, open-minded, open-hearted uh, attorneys here, uh, Mary Holland and Kim Mac Rosenberg, both JDs, who were uh, two of the authors of The HPV Vaccine on Trial, which was a book that I, I said to you guys was very, very influential for me in my career. And the the just copious number of studies and testimonies and and even just case studies and examples of women and men who've, who've gone through some pretty um, deleterious uh, health consequences as a result of maybe not being uh, given all of the information about these vaccines. So guys, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, before we get into questions, and I have many of them, so I won't, I won't burden this any further. Do you recognize this shirt by we any do. chance? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so for, <laughs> for those who are not looking at, by the way, guys, if you don't know that we're on YouTube, we now have an in-show producer. We're putting out some really nice videos of the interviews, but um, this is a, uh, a t-shirt that I got at a recent wellness expo in Nashville, outside of Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee, where their children's health defense fund was tabling. And I went up and I said, oh my gosh, like Mary Holland's on that shirt. Like I'm going to be interviewing her next week. And they said, take one of the shirts. And I said, I'll wear it on the show. So um, for those who can't read it, it's going to be hard for me to read it upside down. The truth is on our side. The science is on our side. The ethics are on our side. And the law is on our side. So we've now migrated from just the, you know, quote, cult of medicine to now the legal profession as to how we may ascertain bias within how this vaccine was released. So why don't we start there? Why don't we uh, start, you know, years ago when you guys got onto this topic? What was the most compelling thing about the HPV vaccine that actually made you compelled enough to write a giant book? <laughs> well, I'll start and, and Kim can jump in, but both she and I have worked closely on vaccine related issues um, for many years, far uh, earlier than this book was published in 2018. Um, and one of the striking things from a legal perspective about vaccines is, at least since 1986, basically the pharmaceutical corporations that produce vaccines have virtually no liability. There's a government compensation program that, in my view, doesn't work very well at all. Uh, that's the only immediate recourse. The bases on which you can get into civil courts are very restricted, and we can talk more about that. So there's the possibility always of injury and death from any medical intervention, but more so for vaccines than others. And um, when we started seeing what was happening with the HPV vaccine, it was approved and brought on the market in 2006, it was the most injurious vaccine that we had ever heard about. And we were hearing about it from a lot of people. And Kim and I had co-edited a book called Vaccine Epidemic uh, that had come out through Skyhorse Publishing. And the publisher, Tony Lyon, who's also very attuned to these issues, really said to us, why don't you guys do a book on the HPV vaccine? And we thought, oh, that'll be a cinch. We'll knock that out in six months. And I think about four years later. Six months. Four years later. But, oh, piece of cake. Great idea, Tony. And it was a, a much bigger undertaking that we uh, imagined. But in particular, I feel like the book, The HPV Vaccine on Trial, Seeking Justice for a Generation Betrayed, really helped me to understand the issues that have become so prominent and really front and center for the world with COVID. Um, I think COVID yeah. 
vaccines now are the most dangerous, injurious, least appropriately studied in the world. But before that, it was the human papillomavirus vaccine. Mm. And I think to mm. add to what Mary said, when we look at children who are injured by the early childhood and infant vaccines, oftentimes parents are said, oh, you're imagining that. I think wrongly told you, you're imagining that or your child you know, was never developing normally or your child always had these issues. Whereas with the HPV vaccine, because we're giving it to nine and up, these yeah. children are, you know, they're already, you know, they're speaking and they're engaged in sports and they're in academics and they're doing all these things. And then suddenly there's a change. So exactly you know, for better or for worse, and, you know, in this case for worse, obviously, we're seeing this more dramatic shift that you see when you take, you know, a young girl who's plays a varsity sport and who's on the honor roll at her school. And all of a sudden she's in a wheelchair and she's having seizures and all kinds of other effects of the vaccine, which we'll get into, I'm sure later in our talk. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think one really important thing that everybody thinks happens in the, the, in medical publication and more importantly, within the pharmaceutical trial space, it's, it is an Gordian knot to unpack actually how medical devices and uh, let's just say pharmaceuticals or other injectable devices, you know, get introduced to the public and then universalized and then made compulsory. Um, one thing we all presume is that that drug has been compared to a placebo and that placebo is what we presume to be a completely safe, like a sugar tablet or saline or something like that. Something that became very clear to me as problematic within actually from your book, uh, kind of like nailed at home was that, you know, young, young women were going into these trials. Their parents were, you know, happily getting them in there because this HPV thing leading to cervical cancer is pretty scary as the young father of two little girls. And I've taken care of a lot of women with cervical cancer. But I would presume that that vaccine was was ex in their trials was compared to a placebo. And then you hear case studies of women who were enrolled. And usually when you're enrolled in a, in a placebo controlled double blind trial, you don't know if you got just a saline shot or the actual you know vaccine that's going to be manufactured and then released to the public as Gardasil or whatever. They they were developing these weird symptoms, not everybody, but many women were. And then when they was unblinded, it, it was determined that they actually were in the placebo group. Like this was happening over and over and over again. So it should be no surprise to us that when a bunch of women, when we actually listen to women in, in any regard, that if they're all saying, I'm experiencing this thing, and then thousands of them start saying, echoing that, it's almost never wrong. But it took years for this to really be unpacked and it still hasn't been fully investigated. So we'll get into some of the ongoing litigation later. But let's talk a little bit about that. In the placebo, what I understand is that there was an aluminum adjuvant, and aluminum adjuvants are used in almost every one of the vax, the 74 doses that are given to children. Not every one of them, I believe, but many of them. And in the age of aluminum, <laughs> we now have this problem where we're injecting aluminum into young people, and it's likely that that is also causing a deleterious effect. So if you were to compare a poisonous agent against something that was advertised as a placebo, but also contained potentially a neurotoxic or a respiratory toxic or cardiotoxic agent. Now we have a problem because the control group and the, and the uh, intervention group are going to have similar reactions. And we can say it performed, you know, 
there was no difference in, in, in downsides between the two groups. So let's unpack that because this is a big part of what's going on right now, I think, with the vaccine ongoing. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And we use the term in our book, Focebo, a false placebo. Because that's a t shirt right there, I feel <laughs> it is. Um, maybe someday. But what they did is exactly what you said the vast majority of young women who participated in the trial got the aluminum adjuvant. And the, the reason we were given for that when we asked FDA, because we did ask FDA about it as part of writing the book, was that way for the people who were administering the vaccine to the trial participants the placebo and the vaccine looked the same. Right. But that excuse mm. doesn't hold water in part mm -mm. because we know there was this small group of just over a thousand young girls and young boys in um, a group that was called protocol 18, which was hailed as the saline placebo group. The only one, the FDA talks about how important this group is because they received a saline placebo. It turns out they didn't receive a saline placebo either. But what they received was everything except the aluminum and except the HPV antigen. Um, so they received polysorbate 80 and genetically modified yeast and sodium borate. And oh, so they didn't have aluminum, aluminum, the placebo. It did not. Is that right? Have, for, those, okay, for, those couple of, for that small group of children, they didn't okay. have that. But it did look different than the vaccine that the vaccine group got. And what they did was basically masked the syringes. And there's an article that was published by the, the doctors and the researchers who participated in that small group talking about what they did and what they received. And it's very clear that these kids didn't receive saline either, but they also had a very different adverse reaction profile in the placebo. Oh, they did gotcha. not have that same percentage of adverse reactions where they seemed to be matching up in the aluminum group, which again was the, you know, tens of thousands of individuals versus this very oh, small number, which was, you know, statistically probably underpowered as well. But, but just to emphasize this, Nathan is clearly unethical. This is gaming the system. Of course. All of the yeah. people in the pharmaco, you know, in, in, in the pharmaceutical industry and in the regulars, they, the regulators, they absolutely know that an inert placebo is the gold standard. And they've even said, and we quote in the book from a major developer, you know, you're in la la land if you don't have an inert placebo. But the main so-called placebo group, what we would call the faucebo group, as you point out, had the aluminum-containing adjuvant. So it doesn't ah. prove safety of the vaccines. It proves that the vaccine is as dangerous as those exactly. <laughs> right. That's exactly what they showed, which is horrifying to the public once they understand it. But if you say, oh, yes, we had a double-blind placebo-controlled study, which is what they say, the public misleadingly understands that, oh, well, they, they did what they were supposed to do. This is one of the most important criticisms of vaccine science is that they don't use true inert placebos, Nathan. For every vaccine on the recommended childhood schedule by the CDC, they did not use true inert placebos. They used older vaccines. They used solutions containing the adjuvants or the preservative or the carrier solution 
on not a single of the 72 doses that are recommended for children were there true inert placebo controlled trials. So the, the term FOCEBO, I agree with you, we really need to get out there so that people understand they're using false placebos, which is corrupted. It, that's not science. Yeah, and we, it's not you know, science. Quote, and Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, as I say, we quote in the book information from the WHO, you know, we're not picking some something out of, you know, out of left field, we're quoting WHO talking about the importance, especially for a new vaccine, of having a true placebo controlled trial. So absolutely, here, it was a brand new vaccine. And the other thing that's really important to recognize is you mentioned earlier that a lot of vaccines have aluminum in them. And that that is true. And it's very concerning. But the form of aluminum that's in Gardasil is used in relatively few vaccines. Merck says it's a proprietary formulation. It has never, to our knowledge, we haven't seen testing showing that it's safe. And what Merck is trying to do, and we talk about this in the book and we've talked about it elsewhere, is kind of have their cake and eat it too, right? They want to yeah. say, well, aluminum's been used for you know, almost 100 years in vaccines. But even 100 years ago, people were questioning the safety of aluminum adjuvants. But this form of aluminum has not been used for over 100 years. So they're trying to say, well, it's proprietary and it's more, it, it elicits a stronger immune response. So it's different and it's more powerful. Yet we can rely on the supposed safety of these other forms of aluminum. That yeah. just doesn't so, hold water for us. It, it, it doesn't. And, you know, this this term adjuvant, for those who don't know, what that means is it's mo it's supposed to sort of serve as like a catalyst or a potentiating um, additive so that you get a more uh, robust immune response to whatever the antigen. And in this case, it's it's a part of this uh, HPV nucleic acid protein capsule. You know, we call them viral particles or whatever. We're trying to get a more robust response to that so that a person may develop immunity. The idea around vaccines is actually a brilliant technology. However, we, we as the consumers are now demanding that we, we wanna make sure, you know, it's not that we are, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I wanna make sure that whoever's providing these beautiful technologies are doing their due diligence in exploring this. So this, this adjuvants, um, and, and people would know how I feel about vaccines, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take a scientific look at this, which is that I don't think we've been told the truth about these things. So the adjuvant that you guys are talking about, let's let's just talk briefly about aluminum. There is, you know, Chris Exley and a lot of other researchers in the UK have really been asking this question for decades. What is this adjuvant thing? Like, how does it really work? And nobody seems to really give me a good answer. So I'm sure that you guys aren't going to, you know, maybe don't know either. But th the point being, if we're adding this thing, why are we using aluminum? And why should people be concerned about the aluminum if we don't know for sure that it actually works in order to, quote, potentiate an immune response and, and get you lasting um, immunity? Well, I think that we do see in many instances that it does at least initially potentiate an immune response because we know, for example, with HPV, for most people, the infection itself does not elicit a strong antibody response. But when you add the aluminum to the vaccine, it does. We don't know how long that response lasts. We don't know, and we do know that it wanes. There are multiple strains of HPV in the HPV vaccine, right? Multiple types. 
Yeah. And we know it wanes at different rates for different types. So you may be protected against one type for a period of time and another type for a very short period of time in theory. We also know that vaccines don't work for all people. You could take a vaccine that's loaded with aluminum and have no immune response to it whatsoever. And that does happen to individuals. And that often doesn't come out in the clinical trials because the clinical trials look for people, they don't look for people from the general population, right? They're not just looking for, you know, a group of you know, young men and young women to give this vaccine to. They have all these exclusionary criteria that basically say, you know, you can't have, I mean, things that we see on pharmaceutical advertising all the time, right? Don't take this if you're allergic to whatever the yeah. drug is and who knows, you know, who's gonna know if they're allergic to that. But you can't take it if you're, you can't be a participant if you're allergic to any of the ingredients. You can't be a participant if you have autoimmune disease. You can't be a participant if you have a whole host of health conditions that are really typical in the population at large. So we're giving it to a subset of the population who are really sort of, you know, the, the uber people who have, you know, the most robust health right. theoretically that we see. Um, so we're not going to see a true effect on the general population. And that's why post-marketing surveillance is so important, right? Because then it's being given to the general population. And yeah. we can talk about the reasons behind why they you know, screen out a whole bunch of people there um, to not have confounding factors in there that may impact their trial results. But they're not testing the aluminum by itself before they're adding it to the vaccine. And again, this is what Merck says is a proprietary form of aluminum. So researchers haven't been able to get any of this particular form of aluminum to test independently in an mm. unbiased way for safety. So that we really have very problem. little information about the safety of that adjuvant. But Nathan, I just want to add to that. Kim uh, drafted right. the chat on aluminum, and you mentioned scientist Chris Exley, who's really the world's authority on aluminum. And what we really have now come to understand is that this is used in adjuvant in all of the attenuated uh, viral um, vaccines. It's not used in live virus vaccines, but it's used in lots and lots of vaccines, and it's neurotoxic. Aluminum is not found naturally in the environment, except that it's, when it's encased in silicon. It's really known to be highly neurotoxic, and we think that a lot of the side effects that we do see uh, from people who are adversely affected by the HPV vaccine do relate probably to that aluminum component. So it's a, it's yeah. a great concern. Well, and it's not just neurotoxicity. Aluminum is actually toxic to almost every system in the human body. Uh, there are yeah. you know, peer-reviewed studies that have been published showing, I'm, I'm in my head seeing a graphic of one of these studies, which has balloons of all these different human body systems showing that aluminum is neurotoxic or it's toxic to each of those systems. So it's really, it's a yeah. whole body toxicity issue. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, one last thing I'll say about that is because this aluminum thing, it's sort of like where mercury started, started eventually going. Aluminum is now going that direction as well. I mean, there are plenty of people, Chris Exley, of course, being, I think the, as you mentioned, the sort of foremost expert on the topic, he has said himself, there is absolutely no utility for aluminum in the body. It is toxic to all living things, especially humans. So 
we won't be able to unpack all of the aluminum research. We'll leave that to the, or the aluminum research, as Chris Exley would say, um, in this in this episode. But we'll put some some follow-up links for people to look into some of his work and some other researchers who, again, guys, this is not about you should do this or not do this. This is about asking questions and then trying to find out the answers. That is the scientific process. Um, so if we're, if we're going to um, accept you know, that there are some reasons to have certain additives to the vaccine. We need to be able to explore each of those independently for their, their varying toxicities, aluminum um, and its various salts or whatever Merck's putting in the vaccine, aluminum, you know, Frankenstein monster, um, whatever is being added to anything that we're, that we're going to be consuming, we would like to know from the consumer standpoint. It's just recently now that aluminum is being pulled out of baking soda. Who knew? But fortunately, people are asking the question. So in the age of aluminum, which and I say that for those listening, because aluminum is used in a variety of things that we put on our skin and our cookware, like we probably did benefit quite a bit from having aluminum in certain things. But should we be injecting it in sort of an, uh, in, you know, in a vial of other, quote, medicine without exploring the consequences of doing it that way? That's really what this is about. But I want to also, you know, give a little hat tip to like polysorbate 80. This is an emulsifying agent. It's actually added to a variety of other drugs on the market in order to increase permeability of the of the blood brain barrier to get it into the central nervous system. The blood brain barrier is like your number one way to keep your brain and your nervous system healthy. So we're adding an agent here that is potentially getting aluminum whatever the, the viral proteins or whatever they're putting in and any other additives into the nervous system. The blood-brain barrier is supposed to be impermeable to that stuff. So we've got a big problem here with this vaccine. Um, let's now shift. So I think we can all agree we don't have at least enough safety data to say that for 100% certainty, this is a safe vaccine. Every little girl, you know, age nine or older and little boy for that matter should get this vaccine. Is this vaccine so that's the harms, right? We have to balance risks and benefits. The risks are you might get really, really sick, per perhaps even neurologically disabled for time in memoriam, as long as you're alive. On the benefits side, let's get into that. Have we seen a benefit from HPV? Has it been clinically demonstrated that, that HPV vaccines are, are gonna wipe out cervical cancer in the near future? Well, I'll start and, and Kim can add to this. So one of the most troubling facts is that this vaccine that was touted to prevent cervical cancer and be this incredible boon, particularly to women in the developing world who do suffer from cervical cancer deaths and cervical disease, um, it's never been, this vaccine has never been proven to prevent cervical cancer, Nathan. There have been big demographic studies that are quite equivocal. Some suggest that it's had an impact. Others suggest that on the contrary, those countries that have had high uptake of HPV vaccines are actually suffering higher levels of cervical cancer. The, the pitch for boys, which you mentioned, and, and this is now recommended in many countries, including the US for boys as well as girls, is in addition to preventing spread of cervical cancer by extension to female partners, it also is allegedly preventing penile and other anal cancers. 
uh, those are really, really rare cancers. None of Absolutely. these cancers affect children, Nathan. Cervical cancer does not affect children or young women. It's the typical age is about 50. So this was always an incredible kind of marketing ploy based on the fear of cancer that everybody rationally has. It's the second leading cause of death in the country. But just because cancer is in fact a killer, or can be, doesn't mean that this vaccine is the right approach. And there's really no data, and Kim can go into the details. The FDA permitted Merck to use what are called surrogate endpoints in trying to determine the potential efficacy of this vaccine, which was just smoke and mirrors, candidly. So yeah, th let's really get into no that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So because so, cervical cancer takes Kim, so long Kim, to can I, can, I just, yep. can I just pause you real quickly? I just want to give people a very brief overview around cervical cancer if they have no idea. So generally what happens is you develop early changes to the cervical cells, which is why we do pap smears. If that were to progress, meaning your immune system is not able to repair itself, it over many, many years develops into cervical cancer. So even getting those early dysplasia, this early dysplastic cells in the cervix on pap smear can take months if not yours itself, especially in young people who have a, a very, very robust immune system. So you don't just get cervical cancer. This is something that requires you many, many years of having a dis dysregulated immune system. And uh, well, so I'll just leave it at that. So go ahead, Kim. I just wanted to give people a little bit of context before you launched into like super awesome data world. <laughs> no, and that's where I get, I get in deep into the weeds, right? No, I appreciate that. And I think your point to tie back to something Mary said, you know, cervical cancer generally takes decades to develop. So even if you have cervical dysplasia in your 20s or your 30s, the, the age of diagnosis typically in the US is in the fifth and in most um, high um, income countries is in, in the 50s. But what we are seeing now and it's very concerning, is higher levels of cervical cancer in younger age cohorts. It's women in their 20s and 30s who typically are not in the in past being diagnosed with cervical cancer. Obviously, there have always been some, but a small number. And we're seeing a rise in those age cohorts. And when you break it out as you can using data that's available from the National Cancer Institute, you see that in the women in their 50s and 60s and 70s, their rates are actually dropping. And these are women who didn't get the HPV vaccine. And again, correlation isn't causation, but we're seeing a rise in the young people and a, a continued drop off in the, in the older age cohorts of women. And the other important piece to recognize is that with HPV infections, almost all those infections, you know, in excess of 95, maybe 98% of those infections clear up on their own. And even if you have that first level of dysplasia, that CIN1, they call it, most of that, over 90% of that clears up on its own. And so when they were doing these clinical trials, because it takes up to 20, you know, 20 plus years for cervical cancer to develop, they couldn't practically speaking, have a clinical trial that was going to last 20 some years before they put this, um, put the vaccine on the market. So they used what, as Mary referred to it, surrogate endpoints. They had to come up with something to take the place of cervical cancer. And what they used 
were those second and third level, the more serious cervical dysplasia. But we know from even from National Institute of Health Studies that even up to 50% of that most serious, the CIN3, will resolve on its own. So these are not great endpoints. And we quote, we quote scientists who you know, work in government labs talking about how these are not great endpoints, but they don't really have an alternative. And it has never been shown, as Mary said, to prevent cancer. When you look at the studies where they claim cancer prevention and you break out that information, you see that there are, there are real methodological problems with those studies yeah. and they don't actually say what they, what they're purported mm. to say. Mm. But, yeah. But I know what, a lot of people. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mary. Mary, go ahead. I was just going to say and, and ask Kim again to, to fill in the details here, but one of the other truly disturbing things that we learned from the clinical trial data is that women who had antibodies to the strains of human papillomavirus in their bodies, in their blood, or that had current HPV infections with the types that were in the vaccine, those women were actually at much higher risk of developing dysplasia, developing abnormal cervical ah. to cancer. And these were very high percentages, Nathan, in the actual clinical trial data. And again, women are not told this, that, and they're also not tested. And very troublingly, the leading gynecological and obstetric organization, ACOG, recommends against women getting tested for antibodies to these strains of HPV before they get this vaccine, clearly putting women mm have these antibodies or current infections at risk. So again, what we're seeing is profit-driven medicine that is literally superseding human health. And it's deeply, deeply disturbing. There are people the that are, that, oh, sorry, go ahead, Kim. There might be a tiny delay. I apologize for interrupting. <laughs> that's okay. Um, to follow up on what, I just wanted to close the loop on what Mary was saying. So there was this cohort in the clinical trials where they showed what they refer to as negative efficacy um, of up to hmm. almost 45% in women who had both antibodies showing a prior infection and a current infection, and then over 30% negative efficacy if you had one or the other. And one of the most troubling things about that cohort of people who had that negative efficacy and again, that meant that they would get CIN two or three, or as they referred to in the, the trial report, CIN two or three or greater, and greater would you know, be yes. cervical cancer. And those women, they tried to write off those findings by saying, well, some of these women, use, they're using oral contraceptives or they're obese or they're smokers, but those are all real world risk factors for cervical yeah. cancer. Yeah. So yeah. rather than saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? They use those factors to kind of dismiss those women. And again, then you're launching this vaccine into a population where all those risk factors come into play. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, I, so I'm actually working on a course right now on um, helping to support people's overall well-being you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually, in order for them to show up in the world in a way that they're not succumbing to this weenie little HPV virus. Um, 
and and that that's a bigger conversation for another time. But I think it does bear repeating for those who don't know. Over the past, let's say, 150 years or so since we've introduced vaccines, we haven't seen a like a really demonstrable benefit as to the timing of when the vaccines were introduced and when we started seeing a downfall or a, not downfall, but a, a downtrend in the significant morbidity or even mortality of various infectious diseases. And there's all this controversy around that. But the point still is, and it should remain because it's common sense, that if we are well nourished, if we are, you know, are, are getting adequate sleep, if our stress, you know, levels are, are, are you know, let's say optimal, um, because it's not good to not have any stress. But also, if your immune system is robust, because you're able to access quality food, and you're able to afford maybe um, to get some quality sleep, if you're doing all of those things, and you're able to take care of basic hygiene, that these infectious diseases don't tend to actually run amok, you know. Um, so the HPV thing is very, I mean, one of the things I learned to counsel on was for smokers and for people who are malnourished or they're immunosuppressed, HPV is a big problem. And that is still true. <laughs> that is still true. So there are a variety of other environmental factors that are at play. Your, your HPV, you know, leading to cervical cancer is not a deficiency of a vaccine. And now I think that we are questioning even the benefit or efficacy of this vaccine to begin with. I mean, you guys aren't starting to. I think society maybe is hopefully. But, you know, this was introduced, what, 20, almost 20 years ago. And before that, we never heard about this scare that nine-year-olds need to now be vaccinated. So let's now talk about the marketing campaign that actually made this just as acceptable as DDT is good for you know you and me back in the fifties. Uh, I think we have uh, we've been conditioned now to believe that little girls and little boys maybe need this vaccine. Otherwise, you're a bad parent. But there are other countries like Japan that said no, thank you, no thank you to the marketing directly to consumers. We're just gonna. We're just going to take this step by step. And um, and so maybe you can compare the U.S. experience with maybe other places where that marketing campaign didn't take as deep of a hold. Well, um, so this the, the launch of the Gardasil vaccine for Merck came at a very um, fraught time for Merck. They had just entered into a multi-billion dollar settlement for their drug Vioxx that um, clearly they had been engaged in fraudulent clinical trials. They had misled the regulators and people were dying from this medication that was supposed to be for your stomach, except that it could kill you. Um, and so the HPV vaccine was referred to as help pay for Vioxx, right? And so it was a very aggressive marketing campaign, initially aimed really at moms and at girls themselves, like to be hip and cool and feminist and like independent and autonomous. You need to have your HPV vaccine. Be one less was one of the first campaigns. And it was a very successful marketing campaign. And the advertising world said they created lightning in a bottle. They, they created a market out of thin air. That's what was said. It was really like an amazing feat from a marketing standpoint to get people. And again, they played on the fear of cancer. And it's very important for people to understand that the United States is one of only two countries in the world, the US and New yeah. Zealand, population of 4 million, that even allows this kind of direct to consumer drug advertising. Most countries think this is in and of itself unethical because 
consumers are not prepared to be able to evaluate drugs adequately. It should be advertised only to the medical profession and then let doctors and other healthcare practitioners give advice to their patients. But literally what we saw, Nathan, was 12-year-old girls would be seeing these advertisements on television and go, mom, mom, don't you want to prevent me from cervical cancer? Don't you love me? This was exactly what their strategy was, which in my view is completely unethical. And they've continued to do this with girls and boys in a big ad campaign. You know, mom, dad, did you know? Yeah. As if these children had developed cancer. And it says in small print at the bottom, you know, these are actors. It, this is just such unethical, such misleading yeah. advertising. And yet this is a multi-billion dollar industry. This has basically been you know, has has entered into markets around the world. The World Health Organization is behind this. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary um, it's an extraordinary thing, especially given what we know about the real deaths, Nathan, and the real injuries. And we're talking about thousands of deaths just in the United States, probably tens of thousands around the world from this vaccine. And we're talking about incredible harms, right? Children who are paralyzed, children who become infertile, children who develop neurological problems, POTS, among other postural orthostatic tachycardia, where their heart rate races up and down. They'll basically have to be, you know, chronic fatigue. They, they have to be prone. Level. Really, yeah. really mm -hmm. devastating injuries are, are associated through very credible scientific literature with these vaccines. So it's, um, I'm so happy that there is serious litigation that Kim in particular is involved in and other attorneys and scientists and physicians to really challenge um, this whole enterprise for uh, for Gardasil by Merck that this is that this is really based on fraudulent uh, marketing and fraudulent data. Amen. And to Kim, do you want to add to that? Oh, yes, I there do. it is. There's I the delay. Sorry. <laughs> Hey guys, quick, uh, a quick interruption here from this amazing interview. I hope you're enjoying the show. Wanted to tell you very, very briefly about the Born Free Method, which is a program created by Sarah Rosser and I. She and I have uh, become so busy over the past couple of years that we have determined we're not able to take every single client that comes our way. So what we decided to do is let's create a group coaching program whereby any couple that has even a glimmer in their eye of wanting to start a family, or maybe they're actively pregnant, or maybe they're postpartum, or you're a birth worker looking to serve other clients, and you want to know all of the evidence around interventions, all of the lifestyle modifications that can help to optimize autonomy in childbirth, helping people um, through counseling around where to have a baby, who's going to attend your birth, birth planning, radical responsibility, bioethics and informed consents, even topics that others shy away from, COVID, vaccines, ultrasound, everything under the sun that we've ever been asked, we put it together into a, um, a self-guided online training program. It starts with 12 months of weekly calls. And while you're going through the content, you can come to the calls with any questions, share your insights in our private community, meet other people. Don't be siloed off. Don't isolate yourself. Embrace community. This is what we're sorely lacking in this world. Sarah and I take an equally balanced approach between the data and the spiritual nature 
of this transformative period that is childbirth. We focus on the moms and the dads, the whole family unit. We talk about care for the newborn. We talk about psychedelics and cannabis use. There is a whole unit just for the dads. There is so much just in the online course, but then again, you're also getting 12 months of weekly calls where we bring guest speakers. We we do some didactics. There's plenty of opportunity for Q&A so you can get all of your questions answered either by us or one of the many people who've been there and who are on this journey with you in the program. If you want to find out more and, and learn from Sarah and I, bring us into your care team. Go to bornfreemethod.com. We'd be happy to see you on an enrollment call. We'll get you booked that day. And, um, and we can answer any questions that you have as well. So find us at bornfreemethod.com. I don't want you to miss out on the content, on the calls, on the guided meditations, on the exercises, on the checklist, on the 250 plus citations. Go to bornfreemethod.com. We'll see you there. All right, let's get back now to my conversation. Sorry about that. Um, so Mary talked about this advertising directed toward parents primarily, right? And it's fear of cancer, fear of your child getting cancer and guilt, parental guilt, right? Because parents are really good at guilt. Um, and using these advertisements where they say, you know, mom, dad, did you know that this could happen? You could have prevented me from getting cancer, but they're also marketing directly to the teens and tweens. So there are websites and ads now out there with peer pressure coming into play too. You know, I got my HPV vaccine. Did you get yours? And kids we know are susceptible, especially in those tween and te early teen years to, to peer pressure. And with a movement too that we see legally to make some of these vaccines available to kids without parental consent, that just adds a whole nother troubling wow. layer to that so that a child who is you know 11 or 12 years old could go into a site that offers vaccination whether that's a pharmacy whether the school nurse does it depending on you know where you are how it how it works go to your doctor's office and they can consent to get that vaccine without parental knowledge but is that consent even really informed consent right how many 11 year olds, do you know, who know their, their own medical history, let alone their family medical history, who could read, assuming they're given a vaccine information statement, who could read one of those and understand the risks and benefits and make, make a really well informed decision concerning that it's very troubling. And to me, especially when you're talking about a vaccine like this with a high powered aluminum adjuvant in it, even if you're a family that chooses to vaccinate, if your child goes and gets the vaccine without telling you, and then you later take your child to the pediatrician, and maybe, you know, maybe your daughter or son was told, well, this is, you know, this is an HPV vaccine. And you go to the doctor's office and the nurse or the PA or the doctor says, well, this is the Gardasil vaccine. The child may not put two and two together, or, you know, they may have forgotten that they got the vaccine because they're a kid. And you could be double vaccinating with these really high doses of aluminum in these vaccines. And it's a multi-dose, yeah. currently a multi-dose vaccine. You get two doses now with a lot of aluminum in each dose, about 500 micrograms. So 
you know, double vaccinating is, is a risk. And again, you know, it's, we talk a lot about informed consent around the vaccine issues generally. It's very troubling that it's being basically swept under the rug for, for young children. Mm. Well, I know, I mean, I, so I'm also a hospice and palliative care doctor. So I do quite a bit of counseling around risks, benefits uh, for Alzheimer's patients, for people who are at an end of life with cancer and they've got chemo-induced neurotoxicities or they're just actively dying and they are in states of delirium. We don't learn you know, how to ascertain capacity for medical decision-making very well in our medical training. And so it should be no surprise that when we actually bring, I don't know, um, when we start to say, you know, we, we start to flip the sort of freedom flag and say children have the right to, to get this, even if you, you know, cruel parents aren't going to give it to them, we ha still have to bear in mind that ethically speaking, a person can't consent to something if they don't have the ability to to you know, eloquently repeat back to you, what is this thing I'm getting? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And what are some other circumstances within my medical history, as you mentioned, Kim, that may, you know, foil this the ability to have a, a, a beneficial or a harmful response? Like we have a hard time doing that with adults, let alone children now. So there is a primary, I think, breach of trust by the medical establishment telling parents, you, your kid's gonna be able to consent on their own because we know that that's not true about an 11 year old or an, even a nine year old or even, heck, even a, a, a 17 year old sometimes, you know, maybe doesn't really fully understand what they're getting into here. They don't have the life experience or the medical, um, this, the epidemiological, you know, ability to ascertain risk or whatever. So um, that's a primary issue. Uh, Mary, did you wanna, did you wanna add something to that? I wanted to comment on that, that there's an irony in this sort of vaccine space, especially today, where adults are being treated like children. They are compelled to take serious medical interventions um, without informed consent, and children are being treated like adults, as if a 10-year-old really had the capacity <laughs> to about that decision yeah. about a serious medical intervention. So this is really a sort of a byproduct of what we're seeing more generally, of this kind of fusion of state and corporate power, that the state yeah. can well, the corporations are so influential, and we've seen that during COVID, you know, in spades. Um, this is a really sad day when children are treated like adults and adults are treated like children. Mm. Kim, I'll give you the opportunity to, to respond to that. And then I want to go into the various vaccine options that are available. And are we seeing the same trends with all various forms of the, you know, there's Gardasil, Gardasil 9, Cervidex. Is that the other one that's on the market? Um, well, we'll go into the US. Yeah. Okay. So, Kim, anything you wanted to add to that? And then maybe you guys can unpack, you know, is there one of these vaccines that's better than others or are we seeing the same thing across the board? Sure. So, to add to what we were talking about with informed consent, I just have two things I want to add. We know even in the clinical trials that many of these women were not given adequate information to make an informed decision about joining the trial. We have documents and we talk about them in our book that um, were given to young women, mailed to young women in Denmark that basically said, this isn't a safety trial. The vaccine has already been shown to be safe. When they got their informed consent documents, it said they were getting an inert, inactive placebo. We know that not to be the case. So there were real concerns even going back all the way to the clinical trials about informed consent here. But one of the reasons 
that we wrote the book and that the book has a lot of scientific and medical citations in it and neither of us nor our co-author Eileen Iorio are doctors or, or scientists was that we wanted to provide information to medical professionals so that they could also see more of the risk side that isn't demonstrated in the advertising and in what pharmaceutical reps tell doctors when they come to their offices. And so they could help educate themselves and maybe educate their patients more because we know that doctors, particularly doctors who are um, in HMO or other managed care type organization settings have very limited time. You know, you're, you are, you know, the, the small minority of doctors who read a lot of scientific materials and really delve mm. into it. A lot of doctors don't have the time to do that. So one of the reasons right. we wanted to write this was to provide some materials for them and they can go into as deep a dive as they like. And there's we have literally thousands and thousands of citations in our book. Thousands. Very, very mainstream sources that these doctors can go to to look at information if they're interested in getting more information because there are such serious issues here. And we've talked about the neurological issues and other, other dysautonomia and autoimmune disease issues. Um, one of the things we haven't touched on is the fertility issues, right? That's that's mm. a really big piece. And you're giving this and premature ovarian failure. And we're giving this to young girls, you know, at nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, who likely have not started menstruating yet. And you may not notice for a long time that maybe their cycles aren't what are not regular or not what you would expect them to be. Or you got the vaccine when you were 11 and now you're 25 or 30 and you're trying to have a child and you're having trouble getting pregnant. You know, what is the connection there? We know that statistically people have analyzed this data and there are real concerns that women who got HPV vaccines are having significant fertility issues and reproductive health issues. Yeah, that was one area that I figured we could probably do an entire podcast about that because that is very near and dear to my to my job as an OBGYN is I'm having more and more young women who are struggling with fertility. And I think that there's all sorts of environmental factors. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't think any of these, these things are just the vaccine. However, uh, we are seeing a trend. And I think one of these environmental factors is the number of doses that young women are getting um, and young men for that matter. Um, from an early age. I mean, they get, what is it, like 74 doses or something now as of 2016, something like that. Mary, Mary did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I wanted to add to it that one of the things that's so striking about Gardasil is um, it's a vaccine allegedly to prevent cervical cancer, a cancer of a reproductive organ. And yet this vaccine was never tested for whether it could itself cause cancer or whether it would have effects on the reproductive system. I mean, how do you even conceive of that, yeah. right? We don't know if it yeah. actually could cause cancer. Well, they do know it can, but it's not. They, they say that they haven't tested it. That wasn't their intent. And they never tested it for impacts on fertility. So it's obviously at a minimum plausible, but we're seeing in our book, in our research on their book, I can't tell you how many women we met who told us that, uh, they had serious fertility issues after getting the vaccine. In fact, I was 
at a meeting on Monday where a woman in childbearing years told me that she'd had very significant uh, fertility issues after getting the Gardasil vaccine. Mm. Oh man, I could talk to you guys for another hour. I, I want to have time to get into litigation, but the first thing um, I'd love to do is real, like maybe a rapid fire. Are we seeing the same issues with all three of the you know available vaccines? I think Gardasil 9 is the only one that's available in the US, right? But Cervarex as well. Say, are, do you guys have the same issues with both? So there were issues, Cervix is used much less, even around the world. It was taken off the market okay. in the U.S. relatively um, relatively quickly because Gardasil was just, uh, what they say is that Gardasil was you know just taking over the market share and it wasn't sure. profitable sure. for GlaxoSmithKline to, to sell Cervix in the U.S. It was sell, sold elsewhere, um, including in Europe, for much longer. I'm not sure if it's still... A, how widely available it still is around the world. Gardasil 9 is currently the only Gardasil vaccine that's available in the US. It has, as the name says, um, nine HPV strains in it, two or seven of which are purported to be associated with cervical cancer. Gar the original Gardasil had four, two of which were purported to be associated with cervical cancer and two that were associated with genital warts. We see a lot of the same problems in those two Gardasil products. But I think, Kim, it's fair to say that with the nine strains of HPV and Gardasil 9, we do see worse side effects than with Gardasil 4. And particularly in our book, we look at the fertility effects and the miscarriage rates and so on on Gardasil 9, and it's striking. I mean, this is a, yeah. it's a very dangerous vaccine. And what we're also seeing, too, is they've now we would see when the original Gardasil came out, girls would get three doses spread out over several months. They then reduced it. And you'd see oftentimes the worst effects after that third dose. They've now reduced it to two doses and they're talking about potentially reducing it to one dose. Hmm. Right, which may well be related to the side effect profile right. that they well understand. So, Kim, what is the ongoing litigation? I'll kind of wrap up with that. I appreciate you guys so much for doing this. I wish we could talk for another hour um, because I wanted to get into like the National Vaccine Injury Act and everything. But we'll 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 send people that way to read about that. Um, I'd love to just find out what is some of the ongoing litigation twenty years, almost twenty years later. It's amazing um, after this vaccines these vaccines were introduced. What are you working on in the in the legal world in order to maybe get some justice? Um, served on you know on behalf of all of the the young women and men who've maybe received injuries here and maybe at the sort of in spite of the influence of these large corporate giants like Merck. Sure so it may be helpful if Mary gives just a little bit of background on the 1986 act and the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program and then I can talk about the ongoing litigation because they really do um, great the vaccine compensation program really is a necessary administrative act that has to be followed before you can end up in court. Great. Sure. So let me give a quick background. So basically in the 1980s, as the vaccine schedule is ramping up and most children in the US were getting measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and polio, we started to see an uptick in, an uptick in serious injuries. And there was litigation for tort 
And it was rare for a case to win because it takes a lot of uh, effort to make that happen against a major pharmaceutical company. But some cases were winning. They were multi-million dollar judgments because these were severe injuries. And so there was a truce that was um, settled within Congress and the creation of through a law, the National um, Vaccine Injury Comp the, the National Vaccine Injury Act, 1986. And it was in, in, in theory, it was sort of a settlement agreement, if you will, between the pharmaceutical industry, the medical industry and parents of injured children. And it had three main provisions. One, that there would be almost blanket liability protection for the medical community and for the pharmaceutical industry, that there would be some way for there to be compensation for those people who are unavoidably affected, unavoidably injured, right? Because these are unavoidably unsafe products. There will be some people because you don't, you never know when you put a product into universal use, what are the potential side effects? And the third idea articulated in this statute is that there had to be a way to make vaccines safer. Well, sad to say, the liability protection has led to a gold rush in the world of vaccines. Vaccines are highly profitable. It's a multi-billion dollar interest. That was not the case back in 1986. It is not compensated most of the injured. It is only truly the astoundingly rare case, in my personal opinion, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And we can come back and talk to you about it if you want, of the person who gets yeah. compensated for vaccine injury. And vaccines have hardly become safer. In fact, there's very good empirical evidence that vaccines have become more dangerous over these years. But in the HPV space, as Kim can tell you, in our book Chronicles, some cases did get to the, the compensation program. One death case, um, Christina Tarcell was compensated and this uh, panel, essentially this administrative process and a, and a special master did adjudicate that the Gardasil vaccine caused the death of this 21 year old girl. Um, but most cases don't get compensated in the program. And Kim can tell you about the cases that she and other attorneys uh, with the support of Children's Health Defense have taken out of the program and now into civil litigation. Mm. Sure. So what you have to do, as Mary said, you have to go through this program first for, for vaccines that are on the recommended schedule. And Gardasil is one of those vaccines. And if you get compensated in the program then you've been, and you choose to accept that compensation, you've been compensated. But if you're not compensated or you get a negative decision or your case just sits in the administrative program with no final adjudication after Mary, is it 240 days? 240 days, yeah. You can you can leave the program having exhausted your administrative remedies that you're required to, and then you can go to court, except there are very limited grounds on which you can go to court. And so we are litigating Gardasil cases based essentially on fraud. There was a Supreme Court decision in 2011 called Brusewitz, which said you can no longer have design defect claims. Those are, those are preempted by the 1986 Act. But the fraud claims can still go forward. So you know we've talked a lot here about what is wrong with Gardasil, what was wrong with the clinical trials, what we're seeing in the real world, right? So lawyers around the country have taken the cases of these young men and young women who have been injured or in some cases unfortunately have died um, from the Gardasil vaccine and are now litigating them in court. And the first case that I'm aware of was one in state court in California, which is still ongoing. Um, the plaintiff is a young woman named Jennifer Roby, who was a basketball and volleyball player and a wonderful student. 
and got the Gardasil vaccine when she was in her mid-teens and has now had a whole series of really catastrophic and life-altering um, health issues. And she's not alone. We see this in a lot of the cases. So these, these cases were around the country and the lawyers for the plaintiffs applied for what's called multi-district litigation status. And there's a panel that decides whether those cases can all be brought together in one court in one courtroom. And in this case, it's in the Western District of North Carolina. So these are all cases wow. that were filed in federal court. Um, they're now in the Western District of North Carolina before one judge. And those are moving forward with you know the parties exchanging what's called discovery. It's information from each side. And that's sort of the status of where those cases are now. And then there are these few individual cases that are still in state courts that will be adjudicated separately and are moving along on a separate track that are, you know, that's determined by that court. But all these federal cases are now in one spot. We have scheduling orders from that judge that impact all those cases. And again, they're, they're from all around the country. And we see the cases that Mary talked about of POTS and we see other neurological harms and yeah. autoimmune illnesses, um, really devastating, life-altering, health issues for these young people. And Kim, the trial is set for 2024. Is that right? That's correct. Whether, whether that's- Do you think it'll be public? Um, will I, it be public? Trials, trials usually are. It's very rare that there would be a closed courtroom. Wow. Can you guys let me know? And, and I'd love to even sit in on the broadcast with some popcorn to see how a single person is going to take all of this information on both sides and try to make a rational decision. That seems like a lot of pressure for this judge. It's not like a criminal defense, uh, like a criminal, uh, what do you call it? A criminal trial or defense trial. If there's not like a jury, right? It's just this what judge is going to sit there and oh, there is a jury. Oh, there's going to be a jury. Oh, wow. So, it's very so, yeah, it is very exciting. Please let me know and I'll update my audience as well. I think people would be very invested in this and hearing actually how this kind of plays out. So I think in wrapping it up, Kim, you know, you, you've got your websites, um, you're actively litigating. Mary, you're working with the Children's Health Defense from both of your standpoints, Children's Health Defense Fund, excuse me, um, from no, both of no your- fun. No fun, just oh, Children's, Children's Health Defense. Defense. Got yeah. it. Sorry. <laughs> um, we'll make sure that we have that clear in the show notes for everybody to go and support uh, your work there. But from both of your standpoints, um, and given that you guys wrote, I think, sort of like the Bible on on the HPV vaccine, at least from the standpoint of litigators, what would be the best case scenario after this ruling? Like, what would you both like to see come out of this? I, you know, ideally, in an ideal world. I can speak more freely than Kim can. Maybe right. I would like to see this vaccine taken off the market. Uh, I think that they made false claims. They they basically engaged in fraudulent clinical trials. Uh, they have not adequately uh, communicated to the regulators what's actually happening with the with the adverse events from these vaccines. And I personally believe they should probably do similarly what they did with Vioxx. They take it off the market and they set up a settlement fund of billions of dollars for all of the people who've been injured by this product. And I say that I'm not involved in the day, I'm not involved in the case, uh, but that's from a, a historical perspective on 
bad drugs that were put on the market, uh, that's what happens with them, Nathan, and that's what should happen here. And Kim, I are think, you able to add? <laughs> yeah, I just want to add a little bit to that and kind of go back to what Mary said when she was talking about the 1986 Act and the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Sure. That program has, and you have to go there first, it has a very, very short statute of limitations. And in many cases, when you're in civil court, for example, if you have a child who suffers an injury, the statute of limitations, which is how long you have to bring your lawsuit, is held in abeyance until that child reaches the age of majority, whatever that is in the state. It's 18, it's 20, it's 21. It varies from state to state. So you could have a child who's injured by something when they're five years old. And if the statute of limitations is six years, they still get until they turn that age of majority, let's say 18, they get six years from then to bring a lawsuit. You don't get that in the vaccine injury compensation program. You don't even oh. get it. I knew or should have known that maybe what happened to me was related to the vaccine. It's basically three years from the date of onset of your first, is it fair to say the date of onset of your first symptom, first Mary? Time. So the, yeah. however minor that symptom may be. <laughs> um, so you have a very short period of time to make that connection and bring that action in the injury compensation program, which then has, you know, a trickle down effect as far as your ability to leave that program and bring a case in court as well. So what Mary's talking about with an, you know, with an injury fund is theoretically could be something that would benefit a number of people who might have been precluded. And Mary, I think that's what you were getting at these people who may have been precluded There's, from the program. Yeah, it's a very problem. It's worth an, another show, Nathan. It's a very mm -hmm. problem program. And it's it's the rare individual who can recognize the symptoms of vaccine injury if it's not immediate uh, and tie it with science to the vaccine and then find the lawyer and then file the case within three years. And for death, it's two years. So it's very, very limiting for mm -hmm. people to get into this program. That's the biggest limitation. But then once they get into the program, it, it can take 10 years easily for there to be a decision in this program. It's very uh, in my personal opinion, it's very slanted towards the government who represents the, you know, the against the injured person. The government is allied in this program with the producers of these vaccines. So it, it's the, the odds are stacked against the individuals in this program. And um, so this litigation re regarding HPV in a federal court with a jury is going to be the first major trial a jury trial of a vaccine in literally 40 years. So this is this is an important wow. watershed and it could really make a difference. Uh, so it's a high stakes litigation. And I so, think one you know, point that- oh, Sorry, we get that little delay. I, I'm so sorry. Um, to add to Mary's discussion of, you know, what's so problematic about this program too, is I talked about the fact that we're in this phase that we call discovery now in the federal courts. When you're in the program, you're suing the Department of Health, the US Department of Health and Human Services, right? You're not suing the vaccine manufacturer and there's no discovery. You don't have any right to discovery. You can petition for discovery, but also the pharmaceutical companies are, the way the program is structured, they are not parties to that case, right? So 
you're not getting the information that if you brought a lawsuit in a regular state or federal court, that you would be entitled to under those rules, the rules of procedure that govern those courts. Those rules don't do not govern the vaccine injury compensation program. So your hands are also tied because you don't have a right to access that information and to obtain that information from the other side. Wow. Maybe we should do another another episode about the uh, National Vaccine Injury. What is it? The National Vaccine Injury Act. Am I saying that right? The, the act. And then there's the compensation program that was created under the act. And we can gotcha. recommend people gotcha. to you for that. One of our colleagues is really the brain trust on the injury compensation program. And it's a huge, it was the first tort reform. It was the first kind of separate court uh, in the country around a particular medical injury. And there have been others. Gotcha. And pretty comprehensive study of this finds that frankly they never work um it, many one of our dear colleagues has made the statement and i agree I, I do agree that but for the creation of the injury compensation program there would not be an autism epidemic in this country because even with all of the barricades and problems to bringing litigation against things of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, there would have been serious litigation over the last 50 years to bring truth uh, and justice to the vaccine injuries that we've experienced. And particularly autism, mm -hmm. in my personal view, again, is, is very clearly correlated with vaccine injury. And uh, that would have that litigation would have succeeded up until now, were it not for the existence of this compensation program that has effectively bottled up that issue. And we see litigation yeah. for vaccines that aren't on the list. So we know we know that that litigation would occur, right? We see litigation about shingles vaccines, for example, um, or there was a there was a Lyme disease vaccine yeah. several years ago there was litigation surrounding that because those weren't on the recommended um, childhood vaccine schedule. So we know that even though, as Mary said, there are challenges in, in litigating in a federal or state court, we know that litigation, I think we can safely say that litigation would have occurred if not for the program. Amazing. Well, guys, I know, uh, Kim, I know you probably have another meeting coming up. Um, we're going to send people to your website, Kim. We'll send, uh, for Mary, we're going to send people to children's, childrenshealthdefense.org. And we're going to link the HPV vaccine on trial seeking justice for a generation betrayed, which should be on every OBGYN's bookshelf as far as I'm concerned, so that we can at least do a better job of understanding what we do and don't know, as opposed to just accepting what we're fed as the scripted way to counsel around HPV and cervical cancer and what we, um, and these sort of false promises we give parents who are, I think, genuinely afraid that their child will develop this horrible thing. That is a, a serious thing to be afraid about. But have we found the, the you know, the uh, sort of golden totem as to how to prevent this? No. And we may be actually inadvertently harming the children that we love so much. So I thank you both so much for coming on the show. Is there any other links you want me that you want people to know about? You just want to shout it out? Anything you want people to know or to, to go support right now? Well, I was just going to say that they can people can also reach me through Children's Health Defense. I'm currently the acting general counsel there as well. Oh, amazing. Um, and my email, I think it can be linked through the website, but it's also kim.macrosenberg, all one word, at childrenshealthdefense.org. 
Amazing. And, and you know what, I'll just add one more, Nathan. Yes, one of the important sources um, that was of great assistance to us in the book is uh, sanevax.org. Um, and that's an organization that really focuses on those injured by HPV vaccines and information. So sanevax.org. Unbelievable. This was a great interview. I'm sure that Jeff is kind of uh, his jaws on the floor as usually when he's listening to these conversations. He doesn't get to do things like this. And um, I come to you guys with great humility, you know, acknowledging that I can't I don't have the time to do what you guys are doing. So thank you for writing this book. Thank you for your work in, in protecting kids and willing to help helping to support um, informed consent within families. So very, very much appreciate it. And I hope we can stay in touch. Thanks so thank much you for having us. tuning in another amazing episode of the holistic of podcast under wraps if you want to find me nathan riley i'm the host i am an md i'm a fellow of acog meaning i'm a board certified ob i'm also a board certified hospice and palliative care physician you can find all of my services and products at belovedholistics.com including an online shop with discount codes for all of the brands that are at the top of their category from water and hydration to supplements to um, courses. I mean, there's so much there. So go check that out. I also offer private consultation. You can buy packages. I'm also, um, of course, the PRP fertility program is open to all comers. You can find all of that at belovedholistics.com. If you're a midwife and you need collaboration from a physician, I got you. Go to Beloved Holistics. You'll find everything there. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, please support the sponsors. If you haven't left a five-star review, please go do that. It really, really means a lot. And lastly, if something in this episode touched you, share it with somebody that you love. I'm sure that they're going to love it too. We'll see you next week right back here on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Take care and do no harm. Take no shit. Bye-bye, everybody.